Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. I'm still in Munich um, at the DLD conference. Yesterday, DLD focused on the circular economy. Today, it's focusing on AI, and my guest is someone who is bridging those two worlds of the circular economy and AI. Sandrine dixon Declare is the co-president of the Club of Rome. Uh, and she gave a speech today, a very interesting speech, on tackling the climate crisis with technology. Uh, Sandrine, help me with this bridge. Is there a natural connection between the climate crisis and AI, do they automatically go together in your mind? So actually, I think that the title is slightly misleading. As you know, Andrew, what I tried to do in my speech was demonstrate that actually if AI is going to be relevant, it needs to be purposeful and it needs to service people, planet and prosperity. So I often say that we have to shift from the first three Ps, which is power, profit and patriarchy to the most important piece, which is planet, people, and prosperity, and we can even add peace. And so to bridge that gap, yes, AI can be part of that bridge. Uh, so can digitalization and technology in general, but it really has to come back to understanding the key complexities of the 21st century, the fact that we're in a polycrisis, not just climate, but climate, post-COVID, and conflict, and really make sure that those technologies are solving some of those issues. So, Andrine, uh, you grew up in the San Francisco area, so you're all too familiar with the Golden Gate Bridge, one of the great constructions. The bridge you're talking about, though, going from the peas to something a little bit more palatable, doesn't seem very realistic. It's all very well talking about it. How does this thing get done? How do we get out of the, the peas and get towards this promised new world, this shining beacon, shall we say, if not on or here on the other side of the bridge? Well, I think the first thing is, if we're actually going to really think that technology is going to solve some of our problems, is adopt those technologies that we have. So getting outside of the extractive economy, moving away from fossil energy into renewables, ensuring that we have electrification, looking at the built environment and rethinking our materials, going through circularity. I mean, I sit on the boards of large companies all the way from the automotive sector through the energy sector. And they're all rethinking actually how they engage with materials, how they become more efficient. So they are in the midst of thinking through that. And technology can enable that fast transition, both new technologies, but then AI, which enhances existing technologies. The problem that I have, and this is this technology obsession, is that we've got a plethora of technologies. Why the hell are we not adopting them? Why the hell are we not really shifting this economy to be a decarbonized economy? Why? Because all of those power mongers are entrenched in the old extractive economy. We've got the highest windfall profits we've ever seen in the oil and gas sector on the backs of energy poverty. People are suffering. People are ready actually to shift towards greener energy if it's affordable. And we know that the price of renewables is affordable. It's not the fact that we don't have the technology. It's the fact that actually those that don't want us to shift 
towards that low carbon solution are making sure that our lives are hell so that we don't actually shift. Are you offering a future, Sandrine, that isn't realizable? Uh, one of the features we're doing on this show are interviews with people who have been long listed for the Financial Times Book of the Year. One of the books is Ed Conway's new book called Material World, which talks about the new materiality mm. of this world. We've mm. done shows on COBOL, for example. You talk about this extractive economy suggesting that perhaps circularity will liberate us from extraction. But isn't the future just more materials, different kinds of materials, materials making up batteries rather than industrial materials? What's going to be so different about this world? We're still going to have huge multi-trillion dollar companies. Why, why should we believe anything will be different? Yeah, very good question. And I don't believe that just substituting our existing economy and our existing consumption patterns with the dependency on new materials is going to solve the problem. You're absolutely right. We have to rethink our consumption patterns. We have to rethink our demand management. And we don't, we're constantly focused on supply. We want to replace the existing systems we have with new systems that are simply decarbonized rather than thinking about our interaction with the economy. We overconsume, full stop. And that overconsumption, by the way, is not making us happier. That's exactly what we're saying in our book, Earth for All, a Survival Guide for Humanity. What truly came out of our system dynamic modeling was beyond the fact that we're surpassing all our planetary boundaries and that we're going way beyond the finite planet. We actually are enhancing social tension through growing inequality, a growing lack of moving towards well-being. We've got a welfare net in many countries that is starting to degrade, and in particular in the United States. And this actually is going to create havoc. So the fact of the matter is we need to rethink, for example, our transport sector. How can we ensure that people are mobile and can go from A to B? This is not just about replacing an existing car, an internal combustion car, with an electric vehicle. It is about ensuring that people can actually move from rural communities to urban communities and that we rethink our communities in ways in which it enhances people's lives and livelihoods. And that takes creativity, that takes innovation, but it takes creativity and innovation with a purpose. You're the co-president of the Club de Rome, you're based in Brussels, but you're born in America, you have an American accent. Everybody knows about the overconsumption in America. What about in Europe, Sandrine? Uh, yesterday at the Circularity DRD event, uh, somebody spoke about even a place like Munich, which seems so liberal, so enlightened, so advanced, and yet in Munich, uh, too much carbon is being consumed. Is, is there a model out there? Is it the Danish model, the German model, the Northern European model as an alternative to the American consumption model? So actually consumption patterns across the Western world are the highest and emissions are the highest. So 10% of the wealthiest countries typically and also 10% of the wealthiest par part of a population within a country are the greatest emitters. And so we need to think through what is it that makes those 10% emit so much. So it's not just the US, clearly Europe has also its broken patterns. I think the model is not just around circularity or regenerative economics, and we need that. But if you look at the five key well-being economies, 
Those models are looking at regenerative economics, they're looking at circularity, but they're also very much focusing on new indicators, new indicators for economic development, moving beyond GDP. That's New Zealand, Scotland, Iceland, Wales, and Finland. All of those countries have put in place broader buffers to GDP growth, knowing that actually economies need to place a value on education, they need to place a value on social systems and access to healthcare, in particular coming out of COVID. So for me, the new model is a well-being model. It's a model that shifts from the extractive economy that purely is growth-driven, measured by one singular indicator, which is productivity, to a model actually that puts in place a foundation of a series of indicators that truly measure people's lives and livelihoods and move us towards greater well-being on this planet. Sandra, I'm sure you remember a famous incident in the Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton primaries a few years ago. Bernie was going on about how America needs to be more like Denmark. Hillary turned around in her Hillary way and said, Bernie, that's all very well. I love Denmark, but America will never be Denmark. I always joke about Denmark on this show because lots of guests and we need just to be more like Denmark. But what you're saying is we need to be more like Scotland or Wales of all places. Every time I go to Wales, it, it's, it rains the whole time. Yeah. That's serious? weather. That's weather. Well, That's not being challenging. But in, in yeah. all seriousness, no one's going to be like Wales. And anyway, the United Kingdom is an increasingly impoverished, marginalized mm. part of the world. And if you go to Cardiff or Swansea, no one wants to be like Wales. How realistic really is it for large countries, the United States, China, Germany, France, Britain, to, to mimic these tiny little places that have natural advantages and, and are very hard to replicate in cultural or economic terms? So I think it's a question of applying some of the learnings from these countries. Um, no one is indicating that we're going to have a fit-for-purpose, one-fits-all model. We have a series of different theories of change even within the Club of Rome, but we all agree one thing, and that is that we need to get rid of the inequalities. No one can tell me that these days, and I know you live in San Francisco, that the fact that there is such a growing homelessness problem, the fact that there is such a growing drug abuse problem, not just in San Francisco, but across all of the major urban centers in the United States, that we've got the highest rates of mental illness, the highest rates of suicide that we've ever had, no one can tell me that actually the U.S. is servicing its people. Now, how do we get to that? What does that look like? I'm not saying become like Denmark or become like Scotland. I'm saying look at the roots of your problems. Start to think about what is more equity and more equitable across the United States. The market system is not working for the majority of Americans. We know that the middle class is getting smaller and that the poorer classes are growing and that the wealth distribution is not increasing. Sandrine, is this compatible with 21st century capitalism? We've had many shows, many different guests, Tim Jackson, many others suggesting that fixing the environment, solving your issue of inequality, uh, aren't compatible within a, uh, a capitalist system, whether it's a digital or physical industrial capitalist system. Anyone can argue that inequality is a problem. That's obvious, as you suggest, all you need to do is walk around the streets of San Francisco for five minutes. But what exactly needs to be done? Talk to me. You're, you're, you're at the Club de Rome. You're a, 
uh, you're at least salty, you're, you're, you're a group focused on fixing the world. And what needs to actually happen in concrete terms to address this inequality? Because it seems to me, and we've done many shows on this as well, is that the nature of early 21st century capitalism, for better or worse, is a winner-take-all system. You have multi-trillion dollar companies, multi-billionaires, and everybody else in the middle class is being hollowed out. So what exactly needs to be done? So neoliberal capitalism and economic systems are broken, and I don't believe that the market system as we have it today is functioning and servicing most of people's needs especially if you look at the way that it's now an over-financialized over system, purely transactional and purely focused on shareholder value. So we've had a complete disconnect between the economy, where people are engaging in the economy, and actually the servicing of people and ensuring that they actually are thriving rather than just surviving. So yes, we need to shift from that. We need to shift from the premise also that an extractive neoliberal economy and market system is going to continue to service people's needs. We've seen that it's both destroying the planet and as I said, it's not actually creating more well-being for the majority of people. What are the solutions? Part of the solutions are, as I've indicated, shifting from just GDP as being the only indicator and productivity. The other solution well, what is... What does that mean? That basically means that in many countries, and this is not just some kind of pie in the sky or only five countries are doing it. We've got Canada now that is looking at this. We've got major economies across the globe that have toyed with the idea of broadening the indicators so that in our accounting, in our budgets, we're starting to place a value on what matters, not just productivity. What matters? Good education. What matters? social services, healthcare, making sure actually that we've got an active economic system, more people employed. But, but these indicators might warm the cockles of the hearts of policymakers like you, but so what? Doesn't affect whether people can afford their rent, doesn't affect what kind of cars they own or where they send their kids to school. How would that change anything in America, even if America ended up at the bottom of this new chart? It's still one of the most prosperous countries in the world with one of the most dynamic economies. How does it change? Prosperous for whom? Prosperous for whom? You know, I, I, I take your point, but how will this change anything? All you're doing is shifting the, the deck chairs on the Titanic. But we're not shifting the, the deck chairs. But how, no. how would you change anything? How, how would the changing of GDP change the world itself in terms of addressing this fundamental problem which you address, which is inequality? Everything is a function of GDP and every single economy, purely about productivity. But if in the past productivity was measured in terms of industrial output, now productivity is purely measured in terms of shareholder value. That means that actually it's purely about profit for certain people and not for others. If we started to take into consideration, for example, that 10,000 unemployed people that have now just increased shareholder value for certain people, that, that those 10,000 unemployed are taken into consideration in terms of our economic valuation, which means that maybe in the US there might be a bit of a welfare net or some kind of support that those 10,000 people could have so that they can bounce back up and be parts of an active 
economy. You cannot tell me that that would not service people. It will absolutely service so, people. And beyond. 10, I mean, give me an example of the, the, these 10,000. All the major multinationals, every single time McKinsey comes in and tells them that probably in order to be more profitable, you should get rid of 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, up to 10,000 of your people working in operations across the globe. Is that ever taken into account in any of our economic analysis? No, of course it's not. Because the most important thing is that what we value is then the fact that shareholder value goes up because that company is supposedly more efficient. That is very important. But one last point, we're not just putting a valuation on people. We're also starting to place a value on nature. We have extracted from nature without putting a value on nature at all. And we need to place a value also on nature within our accounting as well. We're seeing certain corporations like Unilever and others who have placed much more of a value now on nature, knowing full well, for example, that their own profits are getting impacted because they can't have enough tea to grow because of desertification or that some of their food products or some of their other components within their shampoos are no longer accessible because actually we've got either droughts due to climate change or flooding or because of species extinction of certain flora. So we know that we need to start placing a value in these areas where we have none. Final questions, I may go around there. I was thinking Unilever is the corporate equivalent of Denmark. What Paul Coleman has done at Unilever, of course, is interesting and unusual. I'm not sure how many Unilevers there are in the world. But it sounds to me from what you're saying is perhaps the first step in all this, and it's a profound change, perhaps even a revolution, is we need to get rid of the stock market. Is that the core of the problem? The public markets for valuing companies? I actually think it is. And if we don't just get rid of the stock market, at least get rid of the valuation that goes into the stock market, Part of the way in which we've started to try to do that at the European level is by coming up with the green taxonomy, where you actually place criteria for investments on what truly is a green or social project. We have to shift those criteria so that investors understand that in today's economy, not taking into consideration the green or the social is the greatest risk. You saw it from my WEF report diagram where we see the greatest risks to society in the next two to ten years are environmental and social risks. There will be no stock market on a dead planet. Let's be clear.